so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a research fellow in Christian ethics. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Barrett to talk about his new book, The Reformation's Renewal from Zondervan Academic. We discuss the Reformation, renewal, and the need for retrieval today. Matthew Barrett is a professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the editor-in-chief of Credo and the host of the Credo podcast. He also is the director of the Center for Classical Theology at Midwestern. He's the author of numerous books, including the award-winning book, Simply Trinity from Baker Books, along with the corresponding volume, None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for joining us here uh, on the Digital Public Square. Last time we had you on the podcast, we were talking all things Trinity. We were talking about Trinitarian theology, especially your award-winning book, Simply Trinity, that I really encourage folks to check out. As an ethicist, it was a really fascinating conversation. Obviously, you as a theologian kind of diving into how do we think about the Trinity and what does that mean for the Christian life? Today, we do a little bit of a different kind of take. We're hosting you on your new book, The Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic Apostolic Church that recently released with Zondervan Academic. I want to dig into that a little bit. Before we do, I'd love to hear a little bit of your story and then kind of what's the genesis of this project? Why did you want to write a book like this and why now? Well, I wanted to write this book uh, because the publisher asked me. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a good reason. (laughs) But uh, no, no, more seriously, yeah, Zondervan uh, asked me to write this book on the Reformation, and I thought, okay, this would be a, a good opportunity to explore uh, territory that I've taught for uh, almost a decade now. Uh, but I almost gave up on the project, to be honest with you. Don't tell Zondervan that, <laughs> because I've read so much on the Reformation I just have mountains and bookshelves of, of books, and I just thought, why write another book on the Reformation? There's been so many good ones. But as I started to think about the challenges that we face today across Christianity, uh, challenges that are sometimes specific to Protestants and challenges that are sometimes so specific to evangelicals, as I started to 
you know, peer into our current state, it did occur to me that so many today typically know the Reformation by caricatures. And this comes up all the time in my classes, uh, even at the PhD level. Uh, I'll have students come in and they more or less have believed a narrative of the Reformation that has been kind of sung from the pulpit and it preaches well, but doesn't always have a lot of historical accuracy and sometimes is downright antithetical to what the Reformers believed. And there's lots to say there. We could get into it, but um, sometimes those narratives are hostile to the Reformation, uh, blaming the Reformation for schism. Uh, that's an old narrative. Um, sometimes the, the narratives are hostile in a different way, though, blaming the Reformation for the secularism that we see today, which we could point back to modernism, as if the Reformers have the, the seat that, that modernist bug in them as early as the 16th century. Others will celebrate the Reformation for uh, similar and different reasons. Uh, Protestant liberalism, interestingly enough, uh, celebrated the Reformation because they thought it was the beginning of modernism. <laughs> and likewise, uh, others, and this is common even in our evangelical camp, others have been taught to celebrate the Reformation because here is at last the end of the Dark Ages. Here's a break with the past, and finally, uh, maybe for the first time, the gospel has returned, and uh, thank God for the Reformers, uh, we now have the church back. All of these narratives have been addressed in different ways by different scholars, but uh, I still find them perpetuated, and I also found that the scholars who have addressed these are sometimes not being listened to. And so, as I started to dig back into the primary sources, I said, okay, I think that this needs to be heard because if it's not heard, if, if we don't latch on to the proper narrative uh, and bypass some of these, these other narratives, it made me wonder, will Protestantism survive? At least the Protestant faith as the Reformers knew it. And that may surprise some listeners because they think, well, I thought I was uh, you know, embodying the, the Protestant faith of the 16th century. But I think the, the reformers would be surprised by what they, they see today in, in many respects. At the heart of my argument is this claim that I think uh, the reformers themselves voice, uh, and not just voice, but they believe it's central to what they're doing. And it's this claim over against charges of novelty uh, and innovation and even heresy. It's this claim that they are part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church and that their reform, as rebellious as it might look, is actually a renewal of that church in the best sense of that word. Yeah, this, uh, some of those themes I want to unpack, because one of them I came across, and we touched base on this a little bit, is that kind of secularization thesis even. And we see this in especially prominent works like Charles Taylor, Secular Asian, as such. Before we dive into some of those narratives and kind of this idea of retrieval, I do want to talk to you a little bit about your writing kind of process and your editing style, because you are producing voluminous works, not only this work itself, but you're working on a number of things. It seems like uh, you always have a kind of a new book coming out every few months almost at this point. Um, and so it, I would love to hear a little bit of that kind of your story and kind of 
how you think about writing, how you navigate that, or are you kind of working on different projects at the same time? Because I know there are many like myself who are working on projects or those who hope to work on projects in the future uh, that can benefit from someone who obviously uh, has something going. The Lord's been really kind to you in that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your kind of background and story um, in terms of kind of ha- your writing and editing process. Well, it is a process. That's the right word. <laughs> And any writer knows that. I should just say at the beginning, I think one of the best, if if listeners are really serious about writing and the hard work and process that goes into it, uh, the, the number one book I recommend is a book called On Writing by Stephen King. Uh, I think it's just the best. And I resonate a lot with what Stephen King says there. He has this great line. The book really is a memoir of sorts. But he has this great line where he says, he gets down to, to why he writes. Why does he write? In what context and for what reason does he write? I think that question has to be answered first. He essentially says uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't think that art, which under art we could put the, the craft of writing, he doesn't think that art exists, say, merely for our sake. But we, we really write and we pursue art for the sake of, of life itself. I think that puts things in proper perspective. I get asked, and sometimes people are suspicious, you know, what, why are you writing so much and that sort of thing? I write because I care, and it, it's really not about me. In fact, if it becomes about me, it ends up being a terrible piece of writing. <laughs> uh, another thing Stephen King says is you, you have to get out of the way. And so I try as much as possible to get out of the way. And in this book, especially so, is I, I really wanted the, the reader to, to hear the voices of the reformers come through uh, as much as I'm writing the book. And so I get out of the way because I, I want each book I write to, I, I always write with the reader in mind knowing who is this going to help? Who do I want this to help? And so that's my motive going into it. I will say one other thing about the process itself. I know everybody's different. And so uh, people may have different advice. But for me, I enjoy writing. Uh, that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, it's not. In fact, writing is very hard. And anyone who tells you it's easy is, uh, at least on, on the whole, uh, is lying to you. <laughs> uh, writing is very hard. Uh, but I think what separates writers from non-writers is those who write love it. As painful and as torturous as it is, they love they love it. Uh, I do love writing. And uh, for me, writing, it's not just a process of learning, but it's a process of serving. And so the way that I write is very much as a reader. I tell my students, you know, if you're going to wait to start writing once you've read every single book uh, that's out there, you know, you'll never write. And by the time you do, you'll be overwhelmed. And so as I read and research, ideas start coming and I start to, to put them down. At first, it's a big mess. <laughs> But then begins the writing process. And by that, I think some people are under the assumption that, you know, you just write it. Maybe for, for a, some rare few people out there. Uh, for me, I like to say, you know, as, as others have said, you know, you, you cut open a, a vein and start bleeding. And then for me, it's, it's a lot like a party. You clean up the mess after the party. But I consider that part of the writing process. And so with this book, it's large, and that editing writing process continued to the very end, down to the, the very last possible date for uh, <laughs> revisions to be made. 
Uh, I was still tinkering with the text. Um, maybe maybe my publisher didn't like that so much, but because I, I'm always trying to refine it. And so uh, that's a little bit of a window into my process. I'm here at my office on campus at Midwestern, but I also write at home uh, in the midst of family. And I get up early in the morning when it's quiet. And then I very much enjoy my family coming in to poke their heads in and see what I'm up to. And uh, I find that encouraging. Those type of interruptions can be encouraging and and sometimes uh, refreshing. Well, it's funny because you even look at a volume like this and it can be quite intimidating, I think, when you pick it up. I remember getting in the mail and going, man, this is a large book. But I think a lot of your heart comes through that, even the humility of you're not writing for yourself. And I think that comes across in your writing because it's very clear. It's often very approachable, especially some of your other works, even like Simply Trinity and None Greater and some of those works are very approachable. And they seem to be kind of helping to educate and to kind of bring people along. And I think that's something that it encourages me of someone when you think of someone that's grounded in their approach, but also very approachable um, in their writing. I think this this volume is as well, because I've, I told you before we jumped on it, you know, I'm not a Reformation scholar. I'm not a theologian. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I want to learn. I want to grow in these areas. Um, but having a volume like this is a really monumental resource. And I just want to appreciate uh, you putting it together. I know, as you've already kind of said, um, one of your main contentions in the work, alongside with many figures like John Calvin, said that the Reformation was not uh, only a Catholic movement, but was almost like more Catholic than the Catholic Church at the time. It's kind of that retrieval coming, kind of coming back to. And I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack, because I think, as you've kind of mentioned, there are these narratives, often simplistic narratives, uh, that we hear and we adopt over time. And I think for some, we even kind of get confused on this idea of the big capital C Catholic versus the lower C Catholic. Can you unpack that distinction a little bit and kind of what this act of retrieval is? Because we hear a lot about that in Protestantism today, about kind of retrieval. What is retrieval and how do we think about that in terms of Catholicity? Well, the the word retrieval is incredibly important. Um, so important that I put it in the subtitle. Those who, who may not be familiar with it may be suspicious of the word, but it's a very biblical idea. Uh, even when we look at the Apostle Paul and his epistles, he is telling the church to uh, ensure that what he has taught uh, is passed down. And so if we take this seriously, that this is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, well, then suddenly retrieval becomes uh, a means by which we perpetuate that faith. It's also an act of humility, and I think that is crucial to say. Sometimes, uh, for for bizarre reasons, retrieval gets this. Uh, well, it can be attacked as if it's this arrogant process of kind of turning up your nose at those who don't know history as well as you do. But actually, retrieval, in the right sense of the word, is an act of humility. Uh, there's that famous line in C.S. Lewis, his preface to uh, Athanasius on the Incarnation, which he warns his very modern students, about chronological snobbery. And he says to them that, essentially, I hear I'm I'm summing him up, he essentially says to them, we are standing on the shoulders of others. And so rather than chronological snobbery, uh, we stand on the shoulders of others. It's not that they don't have blind spots, he says, they do, um, just like we do today. But 
their blind spots are not usually our blind spots, which means that they are able in a very prophetic way to speak to our weaknesses, our blind spots today. Uh, I find C.S. Lewis just right on target. Um, This is what retrieval is about. We are essentially looking to the past and asking for its wisdom. Um, Because those Christians who have come before us down through the centuries have spent ages looking at the texts of Scripture and trying to understand the most difficult questions and even gathering together as a church to declare what is orthodox and what is not. So, uh, in one sense, to come to the text of Scripture as if no one has read it before us, well, it's not just arrogant, but it's actually quite modern in the bad sense of that word. Uh, it's, It's a very modernist impulse. The Reformers understood that when they read the Bible, the Bible is our final court of appeal because it is inspired by God. Uh, but they could never imagine, and this would have been so strange to them, if you, for, for them to open the Bible alone. That would, have been, that would have bucked against the humility that they were trying to foster. Uh, they always read the Bible with the church Catholic. And by Catholic, we mean Catholic with a lowercase c, Catholic meaning universal. So think of the Nicene Creed at the end when it says we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. To read the Bible with the church, said the Reformers, is to ensure that we're not just listening to their wisdom, but we are holding each other accountable to doctrine that is biblical, to creeds that uh, the church has labored over, sometimes even bled over, to ensure orthodoxy on major, major components of the faith, such as the Trinity or the person of Christ and so much more. So retrieval is an act of humility, and it's, I would say, without it, you cannot actually have Reformation. Uh, And this is where I think caricatures need to be corrected. The Reformation is impossible without retrieval. Uh, what are they reforming to? Well, without retrieval, uh, the retrieval of the scriptures, first and foremost, but of course, uh, the retrieval of that interpretation of the scriptures, that tradition handed down to them, uh, they have nothing to reform to in the end. So I hope that clarifies. Uh, it gives us a window into what the reformers were about to reject retrieval in their minds, would be to go a more radical route. Uh, the route of the radicals of the 16th century. And the reformers thought that's not actually, that that will not bring about renewal in the end. That will bring about sectarianism. And they did not consider that Catholic. And on that point, they were quite willing, (laughs) along with their Roman Catholic counterparts, to say, uh, yeah, that is sectarian. And and please, please, by the way, don't confuse us (laughs) reformers with those radicals. I know one of the things that I often talk to my students about is rejecting simplistic narratives. Um, often, especially when we're learning about philosophy or even church history, even there can be these these threads or these narratives that there are some truth to, but they seem awfully convenient. Uh, it always reminds me of uh, there's this image that floats across the internet every once in a while, and it's a church membership class, and it's like one AD, and then all the branches of the family tree coming from Jesus, and then it circles in this little spot and it says, "And there we are," and then this little kid in the back says, "You know." 
Jesus is so lucky to have us, like we got it all right. And just kind of not only modeling humility, but even kind of rejecting this idea that things happen in a vacuum, these kind of simplistic narratives. And one that always comes up uh, with my students, and I think they're often shocked by, is we're reading and working through the works of Charles Taylor and Secular Age and how he kind of portrays the Protestant Reformation as a Catholic and kind of having this idea that this is really where secularism or modernism came from in some sense. This is where we, why we are the way we are today was because of the Protestants and lays a good bit of the blame at the, at the Protestant Reformation. This is one of the things that you kind of noted earlier in terms of these narratives that you seek to kind of overcome. And there are a number of them here. I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack those views a little bit, because I think for some of us, we may have a picture of the Reformation. We think of Martin Luther in the theses at the door at Wittenberg, and that's really all we think of. Uh, we don't really know a lot of the breadth and the history kind of digging back into those sources to realize what the reformers are actually doing. So what are some of those narratives, especially that kind of secularization narrative, and how do we kind of combat that as you look back into the sources themselves? You know, Jason, this is, it, it's good that the two of us are meeting like this on this podcast, right? Because here's a point where our two worlds converge. Someone like Charles Taylor brings our two worlds together. <laughs> and I very much, I have to say for a full stop, I think listeners know this, I very much appreciate the work of Charles Taylor. Yes. And I think he's actually right on many accounts. Yes. Here is where I just have a disagreement. And I think it was interesting yeah. as I was working through this volume, I was like, that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm right there with you. I think uh, Charles Taylor's work is very important. Uh, in fact, I think if we don't come to terms with the secularization that he's uh, observing, and uh, I think that we're not living in reality as we know it today. And it's not just Taylor. I should probably clarify this. There are different people in different camps, some academic, some more popular, that teach a certain narrative. Uh, you think and there's many examples of this. You have, uh, for example, certain historians like Brad Gregory. Uh, you also have certain figures that would perpetuate this narrative in what's sometimes called a radical orthodoxy. But wherever you find it, it goes some. It basically goes something like this. And again, read my book because I give several chapters to you know teasing some of this out. But essentially, it says that where were the it really begins with a question: Where were the roots of modernism and the secularism that stemmed from it? And that's a good question. Things don't just come out of nowhere, so it's a very good question. And here's where I think they're right: uh, They go back to the late medieval period. Think here, 14th century, for example, 15th century. And they put their finger on certain individuals, and they notice, yeah, there seems to be a strong break at this point. Uh, these would be individuals like Duns Scotus, uh, William of Ockham, and Gabriel Beale. Now, just to give you some historical context, Beale is living right on the eve of Luther and, and what will become his Reformation. Now, it's a very long story, but I spend 350 pages on the medieval, uh, the the what we call the High Middle Ages. This is these are individuals like Anselm, one of my favorites, Thomas Aquinas, uh, though many others. And 
in the high Middle Ages, though also the the early Middle Ages, um, those medieval figures even before them, Boethius, for example, there was a general approach to reality that went back to Augustine, and not just Augustine, but operated under certain commonalities with, say, Greek philosophy from Plato to Aristotle to Plotinus. But their understanding of reality was what we would call realist. They understood that uh, universals are, in fact, real, (laughs) as basic as that sounds. And that things are not arbitrary, but God, uh, there are inherent, because things have natures, we can talk about right and wrong. We can talk about an objective, even intrinsic understanding of things like justice and righteousness and and so much more. This view of reality, this realist view of reality, was so important because it explained uh, not just the creator-creature distinction, but it also explained how we participate in the likeness of God. And it assumed something really quite central, that God could really be present. He could be really present in this world. And as you can imagine, that had all kinds of implications from creation and providence to uh, everything like the incarnation and Lord's Supper. Well, there's a lot more to say there as to how that develops. Think of Paul's words in Athens, in him we live and move and have our being. Okay. Well, when you arrive in the late Middle Ages, something changes. And there's debate as to how radical and how consequential it is, but I don't think there should be debate over uh, the change itself. Um, you have figures, uh, certain uh, medieval figures like Dun Scotus, for example, who is arguing for a voluntarism and exchanging the analogy of being for a a university of being. And then you have figures like William of Ockham, who I think even take things further and introduce uh, a nominalism that now questions the existence of universals. And not just Ockham, but but Beale uh, actually applies this to salvation to say, well, if voluntarism and nominalism are true, How does that change salvation? And I would argue, other historians have argued this, that at best, he ends up in semi-Pelagianism. At worst, he ends up in Pelagianism itself. Uh, It's a long, complicated story. But essentially, if if God is a voluntarist God in a a nominalist world in which that cord of participation is cut and you don't have uh, universals, well— uh, if that's true, then could it be the case that God simply by means of his voluntarist will makes a covenant? And how does that work? Well, if you do your best, and the key word is if, if you do what lies within you, then God will reward you with the grace that's necessary to, to merit further grace and justification, etc. Well, this is, I think, a radical break because... Whatever we may think of the flaws of those who came before them, uh, they, in the Augustinian and Thomistic traditions, they, at the very least, understood that grace is always primary. Um, They're very Augustinian in that sense. And that, too, stemmed from their realism. Now, come Martin Luther, 1517. Uh, Let me see if I can bring this home. Luther is trained in what was called the Via, what we call the Via Moderna. Uh, this is Occam and Beale all over again. Uh, 
and he tries it on. He really does. You have to give Luther credit, um, but it creates, uh, well, to, to put it lightly, uh, Luther finds himself incredibly frustrated. Um, as much as uh, Beale has instructed him that uh, God won't go back on on this voluntarist, nominalist uh, understanding of the covenant and salvation, uh, Luther starts to wonder, um, how do I know? I mean, he is, after all, a wrathful God. How do I know he will come through if I do my best? And more importantly, how do I know if I've done my best? It's not to say that Luther, at this point, understands all the philosophy that is behind that soteriology, but he has enough of it. He has a big enough dose to understand this is not the Pauline way, and it's not the Augustinian way. And so by 1517, we always think of Luther's theses on on the church door, but but actually just before that, he writes a, a a little treatise of theses against scholastic theology. Now, contrary to what the title, you know, it could give you the wrong impression as if Luther is taking on the whole of classic theology. He's actually, he, he isn't. He names names. He names Scotus. He names Occam. He names Beale. And these become the targets. Uh, Luther is, is quite, quite frustrated. And he's starting to, you have to remember side by side with all this is the pastoral side with indulgences and the abuse and Luther is starting to see the pastoral consequences, not just in his life, but the life of the church. So all that to say, back to the original question of Charles Taylor and secularism, right? How do we get here? Well, oftentimes the reformers are blamed as if, you know, because you're trying to connect the dots. How do we get from Scotus and Occam and Beale to secularism after modernity? And the reformers are looked at and people say, aha, here's, here's the fault. The reformers were the carriers of this virus. Now, I could give all kinds of examples why that's not the case, but I think I just want to say here, even from Luther, right? It's not to say that there's no voluntarist, nominalist signs in the Reformation. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying even with this example of Luther, you can see it's not that simple. Uh, Luther is bucking against it to some extent. And when we move forward into other reformers, as time goes by, they become more and more aware, I think, sometimes more so than Luther. And someone like Calvin, for example, uh, did Calvin cut the cord of participation between us and God? Well, uh, many good scholars like Todd Billings and Julie Canlis and others have done some outstanding work showing, no, actually, Calvin has a very emphatic doctrine of participation. And isn't it interesting when we move over to other reformers? I should say Calvin's doctrine of participation comes through in all kinds of ways. His understanding of uh, the Creator, for example, but also his understanding of the Lord's Supper. I should also add his pastoral ministry. Uh, He has much to say about what he calls living icons, interesting enough. But even when we move over to other reformers, um, the narrative just doesn't fit so neatly as as sometimes those people want us to, to think. So, for example, you have figures like Peter Martyr Vermigli and Martin Bootser and Jerome Zanke, uh, very much indebted to Thomism. And though they take issue with certain parts in, soteri- in soteriology or uh, ecclesiology, they see the Reformation as a refinement of Thomism. And in that sense, uh, they're very aware that they are operating within the realist tradition. And that carries on with uh, the Reformed scholastics and Reformed Orthodox much later. So that's a long answer. 
but the point is it's not as neat and tidy as as sometimes that narrative you know it gives that that impression that it is it's not that neat and tidy and i think it might be better to look for the blame elsewhere <laughs> And I agree. And I think that's where um, I highly recommend checking out a volume like this because you really do not only unpack some of those myths, but kind of readdressing and reframing a lot of the Reformation and getting into some of the, even their influences on who who influenced them in many ways. And this is something you kind of mentioned already, but I'd love for you to unpack a little bit more is kind of the Thomistic influence on the Reformation. We often think, especially today, there there are some narratives that see the, the Reformation as a complete and total break with the Thomistic tradition, kind of a rejection of Aquinas and his thought. I'd love to see, because I think especially among some Protestants, we're starting to see almost that retrieval, even in terms of natural law, in terms of ethics and how we navigate some of those things. How is it that, you know, Thomas Aquinas is, as you quote, a, a sounder scholastic, He's kind of helping to reframe and to help influencing. What is his influence on the Reformation itself and some of the the leading figures? You know, this is such an important question. And uh, Jason, I think you're right. I I think it's exciting because today, Protestants, I mean, you look at books on Aquinas, they're always written by Roman Catholics. And so I think Protestants have just assumed, oh, well, you know, I guess that's that. And (laughs) we can't touch him because if you do, he's Roman Catholic. And that's just not that's just not the case. Um, it's not to say that there are no aspects of Thomas's thought that don't blossom into uh, certain Roman Catholic doctrines today. Not denying that, but we have to remember that the whole of what Thomas says, well, Protestants down through the ages did not have that same reaction that we have today. Uh, they considered Thomas, at the very least, critical to engage with. And at the very best, uh, they found themselves indebted to Thomas on a whole scope of issues. And not just theology, but like you said, in ethics, for example, natural law. Thomas is one of the, the most profound uh, thinkers on natural law uh, in society. And it's not a surprise that if you look at Protestants down through the ages, they have very much considered Thomas an ally, not a foe. But if we come back to the big picture, I think what we find is is something quite different in uh, the historical archives than, than today's popular stereotypes, which I often find completely uninformed by history. What do I mean? Well, let's just take some examples. Maybe that will help. First of all, Luther. Luther, remember, is being trained in that via Moderna. It's very different than Martin Bootser or others who are trained in Thomism, unlike Luther. When Luther is trained, uh, his professors are given him books by Gabriel Beale to read. When Luther is absorbing this, well, Beale misinterprets Aquinas to Luther. Um, I have a whole chart in my book outlining, you know, I'm, I'm indebted to the work of John Farthing here, but outlining all the different ways. It's overwhelming. Uh, it's not to say that he always misinterpreted him, Aquinas, but on key, key doctrines, <laughs> to put it this way, uh, he makes Aquinas look semi-Pelagian like, like Beale is. And so no wonder, you know, no wonder Luther has such a we don't really have good evidence showing that Luther really read the breadth of Aquinas, but the little he got, 
it was it came through this filter. So no wonder he had such a bad impression. When you move on from Luther, what what do you find? Well, I think you find other reformers more informed than Luther was uh, because of their Thomist upbringing. And like I said, they don't abandon Thomism, but they look for ways to bring it to greater refinement. So you take two of my favorites here, Peter Martin Vermigli and Jerome Zonke. Uh, Isn't it interesting that when you look at their works, in some ways they are uh, a striking parallel to Thomas's Summa, especially on the doctrine of God, because they considered Thomas's articulation of God and Christ just a very mature articulation of orthodoxy itself. We could go further, though. Uh, when you look, for example, even beyond them, isn't it interesting that you begin to see Thomas quoted <laughs> in the sermons of Heinrich Bollinger? Or, interestingly enough, you have certain uh, reformers that are in Zwing- Zwingli's camp who are writing to, to those uh, in Basel, uh, or Basel and, and they're trying to to tell them, you need to go back and you need to read Thomas because uh, what he's saying here actually works to our advantage. Now, this is the kicker. Uh, Michael Horton, by the way, has a great book on justification, those two volumes on justification. And Michael Horton does some digging around at the Council of Trent. And what does he find? Well, in the end, he finds that not only uh, are they aware, are the Protestants trying to counter Trent aware of Thomas Aquinas, but they're actually using Thomas Aquinas to counter Trent. (laughs) And so uh, Mike has this great statement where he says, uh, in his opinion at least, that uh, he thinks that those reformers trying to counter Trent were more Thomistic (laughs) than those at Trent. The point is this. I think on the whole, the reformers, it's not that they don't have any disagreements with Aquinas, but on the whole— They see themselves, they see their feet firmly planted in that broad stream of the Augustinian and Thomistic heritage. So whether it's philosophy and and discussions of realism, whether it's theology and discussions of Trinity and Christology or predestination or the primacy of grace, whether it's ethics and natural law, across the board of the Reformation, it is astonishing, both in England in Germany, both among the Swiss and in Geneva, believe it or not, yes, Geneva, you see them all in different ways for different reasons, retrieving Aquinas. And that, you see the seeds of it there, but then when you move forward into the latter half of the 16th century and the 17th century among the Protestant scholastics, both among Lutherans, Reformed, and Anglicans, all of them in some ways, some more explicitly than others, because given you know the Roman Catholic context, but they are all indebted to, to Thomas. And some of them see their debt so strong that they think of what they are doing as a refinement and a fulfillment of that Augustinian and Thomistic stream that came before them. 
Yeah, it's something I've noticed with my students when I assign, you know, parts of uh, Thomas on the law or Thomas on morality. It's really interesting to watch students go, huh, I actually agree with a lot more than I thought. And I said, yeah, you know, this idea of going back to the sources, going back to the primary sources can help us to kind of uh, overcome a lot of the caricatures and a lot of the ah historical kind of understandings and some of the simplistic narratives that we've picked up over the time is going back to the source. That's one of the reasons um, in my syllabi I try to kind of balance a, a good chunk, often often even a majority of kind of historical sources um, informing what we're doing instead of just going to kind of some of the contemporary sources, which can be very helpful. But one of the things you noted earlier, and we always kind of end the podcast talking about future resources, further resources, um, we obviously encourage folks to go grab this new volume, The Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. It is a, it's a beast of a volume. It is something that I think is going to be a real blessing to the church. Uh, not just in terms of academics, but even pastors and ministry leaders who want to dig a little bit deeper on some of those things. But you mentioned earlier C.S. Lewis and that kind of introduction to uh, that really helpful volume. And Lewis, in that same kind of essay about chronological snobbery, also notes the value of reading old books. And I always found that really interesting and really striking where he says, sometimes um, when you go back and read the actual primary sources, they're a lot easier to understand than you think. I think sometimes we live with this assumption that older works are confusing, that they're written at a different time. But one of the reasons they have such an enduring legacy and influence, as you've already been talking about with Aquinas, is because of their clarity, is because of how easy in some sense they are to understand, even though they're very deep. Um, and so he'll say that sometimes the contemporary interpreters uh, make things a lot more difficult. Uh, they actually make some of those ideas more difficult. And so one of the things as we end the podcast today, I'd love for you to kind of note, in light of our conversation, in light of kind of the sources that you dug into for a volume like this, I think that can be quite intimidating for folks. But where would you encourage folks if they were saying, I really want to read Aquinas, or I really want to read Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or others? Where would you recommend them starting? I'm not saying pick up you know, grab the full summa and try to work through it over the next year, that might kill you. Um, but the idea of where would you start if they wanted to kind of start digging into some of these primary sources for themselves? Oh, goodness. This was one of the, the great challenges of writing the bibliography at the end of the book. It was so long, and I thought, it's really so short. <laughs> but but here's the thing, okay? Let me just give some uh, reading you know, this will fill up your Amazon cart, <laughs> your wish list. <laughs> uh, here's some places to go. First of all, if you want to understand from the reformers themselves that their project is really about renewing the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, go to test cases. So, for example, read that English reformer John Jewell. There's some good contemporary uh, translations out there. His book, An Apology of the, the Church of England, sometimes it's called um, other things. But here you have a, a very straightforward example. Another would be, uh, if you want to head over into the Swiss territory, another one would be Heinrich Bollinger. Or Bollinger. Uh, I think sometimes we're very familiar with his decades but his book of the Holy Catholic Church. I mean, you just see it right there in the title. Um, here he's trying to place the Swiss in that stream of Catholicity that I mentioned earlier. Another fantastic, a very short one, in fact, another fantastic example 
is that bit before Calvin's Institutes where he writes to the king of France. You'll notice the whole point of him appealing to the French here is to, to stick up for his Protestant brothers and sisters in Christ over in France and to persuade the king they are not sectarians, like you've been told, but they are just as much Catholic, and they, they have the right to be protected and the right to worship. But his whole case is built on Catholicity. So those are just a few places you could go in the primary sources. Luther, Luther's book on the three symbols. Another uh, fascinating test case where Luther is frustrated that the churches are not as uh, they don't look like they've experienced the Reformation. And on top of that, Luther's worried about they don't even look quite that, well, they don't even look that orthodox sometimes. And so Luther is returning to the creeds, uh, saying, sing the Nicene Creed on Sunday. Uh, so here, here are some just very easy examples, uh, just fruit hanging from the tree. I think what will happen is if, if you start to know, if you start with some of these examples, these are just a few. There's dozens. You'll start to notice it everywhere. It just starts to come out uh, like you never saw before. Um, the other thing I'll mention is in terms of reading, I think there are some key books that have advanced this discussion. Uh, for example, if you're interested in Thomas Aquinas, well, the best thing you could do is just to actually read Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I think as a Protestant, Protestants, uh, sometimes they're afraid of what they don't know. But read Thomas Aquinas. It's going to take you a long time to get to a point where you might have a strong disagreement with him because there is so much agreement. So read through his Summa. Read his commentary on John. I often tell students to start there because they're familiar with the Gospel of John. And here is a beautiful picture of God and Christ uh, through a biblical book. And Thomas is a very uh, reliant and dependable commentator I also would say, in terms of the Aquinas-Protestant connection, uh, there's a very helpful book out there called Aquinas Among the Protestants, and uh, David Van Drunen is one of the editors. But the book itself is composed of about 20 or more uh, Protestants, in which they are just giving test case after test case, demonstrating the ways that Protestants in the 16th, 17th, and even 18th centuries interacted with Aquinas or Thomism at large. And it's pretty sweeping. It's not just theology. It, it gets into ethics as well. And so I think you'll enjoy that book. I'll stop there. I could go on forever. <laughs> no, those are really helpful. And for listeners' sake, we'll include all of that along with a, a link to The Reformation as Renewal, Dr. Barrett's new book from Zondervan Academic. We'll include all of that in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Barrett, we'll have to have you back on. We kind of ran out of time, but uh, one of the questions is, even talking about the nature of ethics and kind of in the Reformation and post-Reformation as we think about uh, retrieving a robust social ethic as Protestants. There's so much to unpack there. Um, but as always, I love having you on the podcast. I really, really appreciate your work. I'm just really grateful for you. So thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's always great to be with you. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Barrett and learn more about his new book, The Reformation is Renewal, as well as the numerous resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. 
This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.